welcome to Young and Sober, the podcast where we discuss what it means to get sober under the age of 30 and stay sober. If you're sober, sober curious, or just curious, you've come to the right place. Welcome to episode 34. This week, we're going to be chatting to Dan, who's come to talk to us about being young and sober and how it works. How are you doing, Dan? Yeah, good. Thanks, Alex. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, And just for the listeners who did listen to the original posting of this I do apologize I didn't realize that the recording was terrible until afterwards so Dan is recording with me for the second time so let's hope this time it works out um so before we start we have a listener a question from a listener Aaron says I'm finding the transition to in-person meetings really anxiety inducing do you have any suggestions for helping them feel less intimidating what do you think Dan yeah it's a great question i think everybody has struggled with this whether they were new to aa during the pandemic and only experienced zoom meetings or if they were somebody who'd been around for a while and had gotten used to zoom meetings um, so i think my my advice on this is treat it like you're going back to kind of your first meetings make sure you connect with people in the meeting the beauty of an in-person meeting is that you have that human connection you're there together you can talk to people before the meeting after the meeting go to fellowship if the meeting does that and so from my perspective my advice for anybody going back is get there slightly early say hello say if it's one of your first times back at an in-person meeting and everybody there will have had to have done the same process and so they'll get where you're at and just be open about it I can be intimidating going back to meetings in person for the first time. So like anything, come up with a strategy for, and talk about it with people that you trust. Yeah, a hundred percent. Totally agree. Um, And I think just on top of that, for me, kind of putting in strategies that help it feel that little bit easier. So like I, a couple of weeks ago, messaged a friend and asked them if they would come to a meeting with me because I was feeling really anxious about it. Um, but I think honesty and sharing is is the best thing, exactly as you said. Like as soon as people know how you're feeling, they're going to be able to support you in whatever way that is. And also, a lot of the time, I found when I was sharing that I was anxious about being in an in-person meeting, people were like, "Oh my gosh, me too." And so many people are feeling the same thing. And to know that like, you're not the only one in that room, because we really like to think that we're the only one that feels certain things to know that there's other people that are feeling it as well is just really comforting and reassuring. And then you can all be nervous together. And that's so much better. Dan, do you just want to give us a brief intro to when you got sober, how old you were, how long you've been sober and what kind of originally brought you into recovery? Yeah. uh, So I have got sober on the 19th of October in 2016. And so I was 27 at the time. My birthday had been the month before. So I like to tell people that I kind of came in basically at 26 because I don't like saying I came in at 27. I don't know. I just know that there's a bit of me that always wants to be when I'm at young person's meetings saying, oh yeah, no, I've basically was 26, not 27. Um, I mean, maturity wise, I wasn't either of those. So I don't think it really matters too much um, what your physical age is. So I I came in, I was in Dubai at the time. I was there for work. I'd been 
I was in Dubai for three months um, and halfway through I came into AA. Um, I came into AA because physically I could have kept drinking, but mentally I couldn't continue to live the way my life was. I was completely unmanageable. Uh, I was really woke up one morning and for me, it was clear that I was going to die either by my own hand, the hand of drinking eventually, or through some circumstance, which I couldn't control because I was a blackout drinker. And that fear of just an uncertainty and knowing that I'd known I had a problem for a while. Uh, for me, it wasn't, it was very easy to know that I'd been drinking alcoholically, but I hadn't wanted to have my life end as it was. Uh, by giving up drinking. Little did I know that actually life started for me when I gave up drinking. So yeah, so I came in, I've been sober now, um, day to time, four more days, it'll be five years. Amazing. Um, so, you know, it's, and it's the best decision I made in my life. And I, I truly believe that. Um, so yeah, sobriety has worked for me and I haven't looked back since. Amazing. Um, and one thing, actually, we, we mentioned this the last time we recorded, but a lot of people talk about the five-year hump, yeah, the five-year dip. How, how's that feeling for you? Yeah, we, we did. We mentioned that, that I said, I didn't believe people when I first came in that, you know, oh, you're, you're not sober until, you know, you get to this point or until you, you know, time, you realize just how not sober you were when you first came in and everything like that and you get to five years and you you start to get a bit manic and you know you're reassessing everything and yeah like I I don't know why it is I don't know why it happens at five years but it happened um it continues to happen I think I think with more time you get more perspective and you just realize that there's more work that you need to do around other parts of your life um you know that cliche of you came into AA to stop drinking, but you stayed to fix your thinking, right? Um, it's been true for me. Yeah, 100%. I think for me, it's also been, so I, I also came in at 27. I won't be five years until March, but God willing, God willing. <laughs> um, but I think the other thing for me is that like, you just get more stuff in your life because obviously yeah. you're, in, you're in recovery, you're working a program most of the time. And more things keep happening. Like you, you know, you get the jobs, you get the people in your life, you get the friends, you get the social life, you get all sorts of things. I got a dog, like there's just more things to manage. And, you know, for me in early sobriety, I didn't really have anything. Like I literally just had me and trying to get sober. And now there's like that. And then there's all the other stuff as well, which is wonderful. It's, it's such a gift, but it does mean that it takes a little bit more working of the program shall we say um, uh, absolutely yeah and speaking of working the program um we are today going to be talking about how it works which is chapter five in the big book for anybody that doesn't know um it does talk a fair amount about step four which is what the last episode was on so we're not going to cover step four quite as much um but let's start with the beginning as you know most people do so it talks about in the very beginning kind of what people's reactions were to the steps when they initially came in. And I know that for me, that's something that I really identified with and something that I love about the big book. And the reason why partially, obviously, it's so powerful is because it says, like, we know that you're going to think this, but 
we know that you think you're going to think this, but here's the solution. We know that you're going to feel this, but here's the solution. Um, and, you know, that's part of why it's so powerful. And this, this chapter in particular, you know, it talks about these are all the thoughts that you're going to have. But if you take these steps one by one, you will start to feel better. Um, and, you know, they read this at the beginning of, of quite a few meetings. How, how does this, this part of the chapter feel to you, Dan? Yeah, so for me, I, I think of how it works. And I think of one of the first meetings that became like a regular home group for me where they read it at the start of every meeting. So I remember when you start going to your first few AA meetings, you realize that there's lots of different types of meetings. And you don't think that when you see AA on TV, you just always think people in a circle, you know, in a church, badly lit, you know, talking about how they are depressed and their life is miserable and <laughs> all of this. And then you start to realize there's loads of different types of meetings. You have, you know, speaker meetings, big book meetings, just your standard, you know, experience, strength and hope share meetings. Uh, you can end up at even other more unique types of meetings. And a lot of meetings choose to start with how it works. And when you're new and you come in, one of the things that I remember was I didn't read the big book as quickly as I should have but I heard the big book a lot in meetings because they read the key parts. And so for me, how it works and they stopped in time um, are the two sections of the big book that I think of the most because they're the ones I've heard the most. And I sometimes think I probably could say a lot of how it works off by memory. I, I can't really, but it has that feeling because you know it and it's familiar and somebody starts reading it and you're like, yeah. So I like that we read it at the start of a lot of meetings because I think it grounds you in, you know, the first sentence for me is really key. Rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path as it's rarely. So right there, it's like, we're not saying this is a hundred percent. We're not saying that, you know, it's guaranteed you're going to have to work and you're going to have to do it thoroughly. And, you know, that's kind of scary and intimidating, but also kind of uplifting. And like, no, if you, you do this, you know, there is a path out of that, that darkness. So I really like how it works. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's there's that um, thing that people say, which is like, it's a simple program for complicated people. And I feel like the beginning of this chapter is exactly that. It's like, we know that your head is going crazy, but if you just do these simple things, it's really going to be okay. Like I promise, I promise it's going to be okay. You just have to do it. Please just listen to me. Um, I also really like this bit. So it says our stories disclose in a general way, what we used to be like, what happened and what we're like now. And a lot of people use that as the kind of guideline for how they, how they do a chair, how they share at the beginning of a meeting. But I think it also, for me, when I started supporting newcomers, it was really helpful because it wasn't like tell them what to do you know, give them advice, like tell them this is what they should be doing, blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, the way that we share our story is to just share our experience. And, you know, then people can either pick it up and run with it or they cannot, but actually what they do with it is not up to us. What is up to us is just purely sharing what works for us and how we worked our program. Um, and yeah, like that's, that's how to do it. And it's literally one sentence, but I found that really powerful. Completely agree. I, I know because we've we've talked before. You're uh, for this alcoholic 
is a phrase that you like. And I like that phrase as well, right? Like, this is my experience. I'm not saying that this is true for everybody. Like, you know, for me, this is what worked. This is how that, you know, this is what my life was like before. This is how I worked the steps. And this is how I got better. I'm not saying that this is perfect for you. I'm just telling you that in a general way, this is what it was like. And, you know, this is what I did. And this is what I was told. I'm, I always find it really powerful when people talk about, well, you know, I was, I was advised this, right? I wasn't told I had to do this. I was just told that this was something that that person had done and worked for them. And sometimes what works for one person doesn't work for another. Yeah. And that's okay, you know, because everybody is different. Um, we all suffer from the same, you know, underlying disease and, that's what grounds us, but how, you know, in a general way, this is how we progress forward. And, you know, so for me, every time I talk, I really do try to say, you know, my experience was this, this is, you know, if you were an alcoholic of my disposition, right. I was a blackout drinker. I talk to people who aren't blackout drinkers and they're, you know, so they've had a completely different experience, but actually at the end of the day, we can relate on something. It's that listen for the similarities, not the differences. Yeah. A hundred percent. And actually something that's come up for me recently, I um, have like this group of female friends in recovery who like we all kind of support each other. Um, I'm the only single one. And so I've been, they're my people, like they're the people that I usually share this stuff with. And I've been struggling with, you know, being a single woman in her early thirties and being a sober single woman in her early thirties. And, you know, one of them's married and the other two are engaged. And suddenly I've been like, oh my gosh, this is one thing that we can't relate on. Like, this is a thing. Um, and so through that process, I've kind of found myself reaching out to other women that I already knew, but that aren't necessarily as close being like, I need to speak to somebody who's a single alcoholic woman in her early thirties, because trying to relate to that with the friends of mine who, you know, have been with their partners for like seven, eight, nine years, dating in this day and age at this age is totally different. So it's, it, that's been a whole different area of growth for my recovery is finding, realizing that you're not gonna find everything to identify with in one person or in one group of people and that you do actually have to seek out and kind of expand your, your connection group or whatever it is. Um, so the next bit is the steps where it just, you know, gives the brief kind of one line explanation of what the steps are and I wondered Dan what your experience was the first time that you saw the steps up on the wall of a meeting how did it make you feel so it's, it's interesting because I I knew the steps before I came in so oh, one okay. one thing about being in the U.S. is your knowledge of AA is generally higher than somebody in the UK so I grew up in the U.S. I moved to the UK got sent to Dubai for work got sober in Dubai and then returned. And, um, you know, the rest of my recovery has really been while living in the UK. Um, and so when I first came in, I actually was scared of steps eight and nine. And I would tell you that they kept me out of the rooms for a bit because I knew I was an alcoholic. I remember so vividly, I went into an AA chat. So the morning that I woke up and decided I was going to stop drinking, um, I went into an AA chat room and this was before Zoom meetings were really a thing. So, and I said, I know I'm an alcoholic, but I'm scared of doing steps eight and nine because I just don't want to have to make amends. And I got every cliche in the book, chiefly that the steps are 
a process for a reason. This lovely woman from the Northwest of England happened to be in the chat and she basically 12 stepped me and, you know, told me that I shouldn't be worried about eight, nine. So I remember when I came in and saw them, I didn't have scrolls in a meeting at all in Dubai. So it wasn't until I came to the UK where they were up there. But I remember the first time that I heard the steps being read out and I just was checking off what I had already done. So I was like, I've already done one and two, fine, three, okay. I was like, great. So I'm already on to step four within like five minutes, right? That was my first reaction of how it works. Like how quickly can I get through these steps even though I have no interest in getting to eight and nine. Wow. Yeah, it's so interesting that you like you knew about them before. I knew about AA. I like I knew what it was generally. I had a kind of vague idea. Um, but I had no idea about the steps. Absolutely no idea. And I just saw them up there. And similarly to you, actually, eight and nine were the ones that made me feel really anxious. Um, and like you said, my sponsor said they're in an order for a reason. Like by the time you get to step eight and nine, you will feel relatively ready to do statement step eight and nine. Um, and if you're not, you probably need to go back to the step before and do that again. Um, and then literally kind of the, the metaphor of literally climbing steps, like you don't jump straight to the ninth step, like you start at the bottom and you work your way up one step at a time. Um, and I found that yeah, really, really, really reassuring and really comforting. Um, so the next bit that I thought we could cover, there's a, a little story about an actor, a kind of metaphor of an actor who wants to run the whole show. Um, and it tells us that, you know, if we try to run our lives on self-will, we're going to fail. We need to kind of hand our lives over to something greater than us, whether that be God, you know, the universe, whatever. We've talked a lot about higher power on this show. Um, and trying to kind of un help people to understand how non-prescriptive it is and how it can really be, you know, your, your understanding of a higher power. Um, but the bit that really, really sticks out for me here is what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right and he decides to exert himself more. And that was exactly my experience. I had this obsession and I know now that it started from childhood where I felt really unsafe. And so I felt like I had to control everything around me in order to make myself feel safe. And then that just carried through to adulthood and I had to try and predict the future. I had to try and I remember my first day of secondary school, I was so nervous. And I remember sitting up all night and being like, okay, this is where the hallway is. This is where I go. How do I find my locker? Who am I going to ask about this? Who am I going to ask about that? Blah, 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 blah. Like literally trying to micromanage something that I had no way of controlling. And then when it didn't go the way that I had planned, I just burst into tears and fell apart. And that continued through to my adult life where I would be constantly trying to control things. And then that even after I started drinking, bled into my drinking life. So even though I knew I couldn't drink like a normal person, I was trying to desperately control my behavior. And then when I couldn't, inevitably, because I'm an alcoholic and when I drink, I lose control. I just was so depressed, so anxious, just from, yeah, not being able to control things that I thought I should be able to. And so I was like, just try harder, just try harder, just try harder. Um, I wonder whether your experience is anything like that, Dan? Yeah. Uh, so for me, 
I don't think I identified with the actor when I first came in. Uh, I think for me, I was a pretty laid back person in my mind and a pretty lazy person in reality. So for me, I didn't have that sense of needing to control things. And I, and I think in many ways I'd, I'd given up on trying. I think I had, um, for me, you know, one of the things I used to always say is like, you know, when I would go to the bar and the, the goal was to talk to women, I was fine until my third drink. And so I didn't have the, I didn't use alcohol as this confidence, you know, crutch to get me to talk. In fact, it just caused chaos once I started. And so, you know, being able to control my drinking became an obsession, right? And trying to control the situation of a night out, you know, prepping. I remember there was a period of time where I used to swap my SIM card from my iPhone to a cheap, uh, you know, flip phone on nights out because I knew that, you know, I didn't want to lose my iPhone. So the sensible thing wasn't to stop drinking, but was to, you know, switch phones. Um, and, and so that type of control and being the actor, I think I, when I first came in, I didn't realize how much it was probably true. Cause I had this impression that I'm, I'm kind of talking about now. I think as I got more time, I started to see those elements of me trying to be an actor and trying to control things and that ego and that self-centeredness that I hadn't identified with as I worked the steps and, and really got into the character defects in six and seven, I identified a lot more with it. And I think that made a, a big difference. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and I think following on from that, you know, this thing about handing over control, I remember when I first came in, I thought it was weakness. I thought not being able to control everything meant that there was something wrong with you, that you weren't good enough, you weren't strong enough, you weren't, you know, any of the enoughs. Um, and then once I kind of started to form a relationship with a higher power, I, I really struggled with it. And I've said on this podcast so many times, I said my step three prayer to a tree because I refused to go into a church. <laughs> um, and now I'm a Christian, which is hilarious. But anyway, um, I actually came to believe that the relinquishing of control or the, the illusion, relinquishing of the illusion, because we never actually had control in the first place, um, handing it over and recognizing that I'm not the center of everything, there is actually, for me, more strength in that than trying to control everything because it means that I'm saying it's not all about me. And we've talked before about this kind of self-obsession and how, you know, I was very willing to think that other people in AA were self-obsessed because they were kind of overtly self-obsessed. Whereas I didn't think I was because I was like, but I'm always like, so worried about being nice and you know doing the right thing and da, da, da. I can't be self-obsessed because I'm always worried about but then I realized actually I was obsessed with what other people thought of me and so much of it was about me trying to do things to create a certain impression in other people um and I was so obsessed with being you know quote unquote a good person or seeming like a good person that I was constantly thinking about myself the whole time constantly and I didn't you know, until I'd kind of done a little bit of work, 
And I think it was probably maybe, I don't know, a year, post a year of sobriety that I finally was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I really am obsessed with myself. <laughs> like, I totally am. And I mean, I still am. I try not to be, but I am. Um, what about you? Yeah, so I think for me, one of the really interesting things was if you'd asked me before I came to AA a superpower that I could have had, I honestly would have told you one of the superpowers I wish would have been the ability to hear what people said after I left the room. Um, it's, and it's sad, right? That I, I cared so much about what people said. And, you know, I know where in life that came from, potentially from being bullied or whatever. I'm sure I could understand where in my life that came from. Um, you know, there's a, a Seinfeld episode where George leaves a tape recorder in a briefcase uh, when he leaves the office just to hear what people say, right? And I, I get that, that I relate and resonate with that so much. And it is caring about what people think about you, wondering what they say when you leave the room, you know, in, in how it works, it says our actors self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. And, you know, I wouldn't have said that, that was really me when I came in. But of course, if you looked at the, what I would have say versus my actions, my actions were, you know, one of the biggest things for me in recovery was understanding how my drinking impacted the people around me in ways that you don't think of. And, you know, the idea of robbing those that care about you of their peace of mind and just how self-centered and egocentric that really is, you know, you're going to drink yourself into oblivion, but that's okay. Cause you're only doing it to you. And you don't realize that. No, you're not. You're doing it to other people. You're doing it in a way that you're stealing the peace of mind of these people. And, and for some people, that's not as big of a thing as it is because of, you know, maybe their situation with family and friends and stuff like that. But for me, that was a really big part of it. Um, and handing it over and, and that idea of, you know, weakness versus strength, uh, of being able to say that you can't do it all, um, that humility that you kind of find in doing that. For me, when I came in the rooms, when I saw step three on the, the wall, I was fine with it. I was, grew up Catholic, didn't have an issue with my religion. In fact, I can draw a really straight line to when I started drinking and my relationship with a higher power stopped because it was really strong before. And so when I came back in, it's like, your life is in shambles. All you got to do is like, get out of your own way. It's like, well, yeah, sure. Like, I mean, might as well at this point, because everything else I've tried has been wrong. And you know what, that worked for the first 18 years of my life. Uh, so why not try that again? Um, and I think that's where, and why the serenity prayer, and we talk, we've talked about this before, why the serenity prayer is so key is because it's, that idea of being able to hand it over and just one thing, right? Like what I really need is I don't need the courage to change things I can. <laughs> I need the, the other bit, right? I need the, the, the wisdom to know the difference. You know, I need to know what I can't change. Um, and, and that is the really powerful thing because once you have that, then you can, you can start to live in a way where you, aren't self-centered and egocentric ideally yeah. for a few minutes a day <laughs> for a few minutes a day a hundred percent I love that you brought up the serenity prayer my sponsor always says or said to me from the very beginning when you're 
saying the serenity prayer, it's very easy in meetings to say it by rote and to just say it because you say it off by heart and you say it every single meeting and to kind of like disconnect from what it means. And so she suggested that I, every time I say it, I close my eyes, I really focus on what the meaning is of what I'm saying. And, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, which is pretty much everything other than me, my choices and my actions. Those are the only things that I can control um, and the wisdom to know the difference. And like you said, the wisdom to know the difference is the one that I really, really, really need because I think I'm in charge of everything otherwise. <laughs> um, the other thing you mentioned was, um, you know, the, the peace of mind, robbing your family and friends of peace of mind. And that's something that that really resonates for me in a big way. My, I, my last drink was on my sister's birthday. Um, and the next day it was, you know, all the usual I'm sorry's and it will never happen again and da, da, da. And she was kind of like the last person in my family that like was still willing to put up with me, basically. Everyone else had kind of given up. And that next morning she just looked at me and was like, I literally don't know what you want me to say. Like, I knew you were going to do it. I knew it was going to happen. It was my birthday. You ruined it. Like, you know, all of the above. And for me, I came in for her, but I stayed in for me. So, you know, the the shame and the pain of what I put her through is what took me to my first meeting. And then after that, you know, the, the program kind of carried me forward. Um, but there's a part in this book, it says, many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them, even though we would have liked to. And I identify with that so much because I thought I had such a strong moral compass. Like, I thought I was the good girl. To be honest, a lot of my friends even thought I was the good girl because there were things that everyone else was doing that I wasn't doing. But what I like to kind of believe and what I do believe now is that it's all relative to each individual person. So like for me, even though there were lines that I didn't cross in my drinking that maybe other people did, I crossed enough of my own lines for it to have been a problem. And my moral convictions were never able to stand up to alcohol ever. Because as soon as I was drinking, all of those convictions and kind of promises that I'd made to myself and other people just completely went out the window. Um, and I'm guessing your drinking was similar. <laughs> Yeah, um, it was uh, in small ways and big ways, right? And I think this is one of the things that you realize is that a lot of people that come into the rooms have those headline nights, the night that any sane, normal person, if they had been through that, would have moved countries and never drank again. And, you know, for certain people like myself, that was just like your average Tuesday night. Um, and I think there were other times where it was really small things, right? It was these small things that you would like to, you know, I'd like to show up on time to this thing, but now I'm not, or I'd like to, you know, feel that responsibility I'm supposed to have, but I'm not going to be able to. And so I think it becomes one of those things that I always say I blew by, you know, lines I would have drawn when I was younger. Um, and I think for me, it's the inability to stop the actions that was the problem. 
because I always, you know, and, and going almost back to our serenity prayer thing, right? Like, you can't even change the thoughts that you have, right? Like, sometimes you have a thought, and that's the thought in your mind. But what you can do is change how you act off that thought. And for me, when I was drinking, that I lost that ability. So I lost that ability to have control over the action I was going to take. And that, and for me, that's not an excuse. That's not a, a way of copping out around it. That's just admitting that that's how I operated. I operated on actions that would have, you know, didn't line up to the expectations I'd set for myself or others. And I think a lot of coming into recovery for me was actually getting back the freedom to act how you wanted to act because you took away something that was creating uh, an inability for you to live up to those morals that you would say. And yeah, you know, there is something about, and the book talks about this, you know, alcoholics <laughs> seem to like to take stronger stands than other people. Something about their personality means that they are more confident and loud when talking about it and then more let down when they don't live up to it. Um, and so for me, getting back to being able to live up to how I want to live, I think was one of the best gifts of recovery. Yeah. And the result of that as well for me was being able to let go of so much fear because there was fear before drinking because I knew that things were going to go south and I didn't feel like I was in control of whether they did or not. And then there was fear afterwards because of all the things that had happened and hadn't gone the way that I wish they had gone. And then on top of that, even when I was not drinking, there was just fear around everything because I was still trying to control everything and I couldn't. And, you know, there's, there's still fear today. Sometimes, sometimes it's, you know, by no means it's practice, not perfection. Right. Um, but there's a bit here actually that says we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow or the hereafter. And I connect with that so much, especially at the moment. I just feel like I've taken a step somewhere, to be honest. I wish I could tell you exactly where that step was, but I can't. Um, where that kind of handing over of what I can control and what I can't has led to me being able to pursue new things without fear because I'm not constantly anticipating what might happen or might not happen. I'm kind of saying, okay, look, I can do this thing. I can put in the effort, but actually the end result is not up to me. It's up to the universe, God, you know, whatever. Um, and being able to kind of hand over that fear most of the time, I definitely can't do it all of the time, but yeah, it just, it just brings so much more peace than I ever had before. I mean, when I was drinking and also still in my early sobriety, I was in fear all the time, all the time. Yeah. But I mean, and I think fear, fear is one of those things that I don't think it's always interesting and, and we're at about the same length and time of sobriety. So the way that we talk about sobriety is with that amount of time. And when you first come in and you're first going through, you know, my experience was people be like, oh yeah, you're driven by fear. I was like, the fuck I am, right? Like, sorry, I don't know if I can swear on this one. <laughs> um, so, but I wasn't, right? Like I, if you told me that I'd been driven by fear, and self-loathing and self-pity and stuff. I, I didn't have the ability to look back at my life and have that perspective. And if I was really early in and I agreed with you, it was because I was agreeing with you because 
I figured you were probably right to some degree and I wanted to be right as well. Um, and as I gained more perspective and more time away from how my life was and, and to where it is, I can see that and I can call that out. And, you know, I know we're uh, not delving deep into the, the actual bit of step four, which is a large part of how it works. But that's where the first time you come to that concept of fear, right? And and you're like really faced with it in recovery because you've got to identify it. And, you know, and then you flip it and you look at like your roles and responsibilities, right? And to me, that's where you stop being driven by that fear, right? And you stop being afraid of everything. For me, the, the most scary moment when I was drinking was the moment that I woke up the next morning yeah. because I didn't remember how I got to, to bed that night. I'd have to go through my phone and was I going to have to send those awkward, like, Hey, people, <laughs> are you still talking to me? Do you know what I did last night? Can I ask you what I did last night? Like what, what's the protocol here? And just doing that every weekend and, you know, having to, to piece together where I'd been, what I'd done and, and what was I going to have to do that, that fear, you know, now I realized that I lived with that fear and I lived with the fear of going through that again, but I, I didn't have a means to stopping it. And so absolutely looking back fear everywhere, but I don't think I could have talked about the fear that I went through in the first year because I didn't have the ability to understand it. No, I mean, I, I knew that I was anxious um, and I knew that anxiety meant fear. I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in my first year of recovery. Um, and I went through a lot of therapy around that. So that actually kind of like pushed me into understanding fear earlier than I think I would have. Otherwise, I actually ended up hospitalized with that. And it was painful, but it was such a blessing because I realized the prevalence of fear in my life. Um, I think that was about four or five months in um, and I was terrified but also grateful for that because it gave me a jumping off point you know um, the other thing you talked about was you know messaging people afterwards and it just made me think about the the word sorry and how it just loses all meaning in in using and drinking like just absolutely loses all meaning because we say it so often and people just get sick of hearing it. Just absolutely get sick of hearing it. I mean, I I, I think I've said this before, uh, which is, you know, have you ever had somebody tell you that you're not sorry when you say you're sorry? Because I did, right? I, I literally said, I'm sorry to someone. And they said, no, you're not. And it cut so deep. And the reason that they knew that I wasn't was because they knew if I was sorry, I would change something about myself. I would not put myself in that situation that I'd had to do that repeatedly. And that's why amends and, you know, the steps are not about saying sorry. Uh, it's, and, and when you first come in, that's what you think it is, right? You think that you're just going to go out there, say sorry. And you realize it's not. And you realize most of your amends aren't a one-time thing. They're a living amends that you're going to continue on. And that's when you also find out that you actually, sometimes your amends is staying out of that person's life, not going in, not white knighting, 
you know, why should you go back and tell that person that you're so much better now? You're doing it for yourself, right? Or are you actually doing it for them? Like, what is the amends? And, you know, so, and, and that's where having really good sponsorship is, I think, the key. I think being able to have somebody that understands what an amends process is and, you know, has been through it and can, can help you understand it. Because everybody, it's, we talked about this when we first came in, neither of us wanted to make the amends. And then you get to a point in recovery where you're like, nah, I'm good now. I just want to tell everybody I'm sorry because yeah. I want them to know, right? I want them to know I'm not that, that person anymore. So let me go tell them I'm sorry. And there's so many people whose experiences, they make an early amends. They're not even at the step, but they're like, oh no, I kind of already said to this person. <laughs> yeah, was that you? I'll tell you the story in a minute, keep going. <laughs> so, no, I, I and like, you know, I, I really am, am thankful to my sponsor that he got me to understand that process. And so sorry, especially when you've been an alcoholic, right? Like your family knows that you can say sorry. What they don't know is that you can follow through and have the actions to back it up for more than a day, more than a week, especially. So my experience was that I came in and I didn't pick up again, but I have lots of friends that have come in and picked up again. And so people start to not be able to trust your, your week, yeah. your month, your this, right? And I remember, I don't think that even people that cared about me thought that it was, it was a real thing at three months, right? If you went back and asked them, they, they would definitely say, no, like I, you know, wasn't a thing wasn't, you know, and, and for me, I was away from them. They weren't seeing me. Maybe it would have been different, but you know, at six months at a year, you know, like, and I'm, I don't really talk about my milestones publicly with other people. Like for me, that's a private thing. And yeah, there's a fear of, well, if I make it really public and then I have to start again, like, what would that be like? Right. And, you know, for me, my sobriety date is a date that I decided to change the way I lived. And thus far, I, I haven't had to try to start that back up again, but I, I personally know that I'm never too far away from that happening. And so, you know, my sorry, my amends is only as good as I keep backing it up with the actions that I had. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the thing that keeps us, you know, I like to think of the steps and even just like the suggestions as a buffer between me and a drink or like layers yeah. of an onion, for example, like I'm in the little middle of the onion and every day that I meditate, I add another layer. Every day that I pray, I add another layer. And, you know, just build up this barrier between me and a drink. But as soon as I stop doing those things, the drink gets closer and closer and closer. Um, yeah, we were talking about making early amends. So I decided that I was, I must have been on like, I don't know, step three or step four. And I thought, ex-boyfriend. That's a great idea. And for those listening, a lot of the time, people, do, your sponsor says it's not a good idea to make amends to ex-partners, especially ones that you haven't spoken to for two years, which was the case with mine. And I messaged him. It was all about me because I just wanted him to know. And at the time, I thought I was doing the right thing. At the time, I was like, this is going to be beautiful. He's going to forgive me. It's all going to be over. And it was... It was the intention behind it. I wasn't, 
I wasn't saying sorry or making amends for him at all. It was all because I wanted him to think of me as a good person now. Um, and he blocked me on everything and I completely fell apart. And he didn't like, he didn't reply. He literally just blocked me on everything. Um, so I would not recommend making an early amends to anyone that's listening because it doesn't work and you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons like I was. Yep. Been there, done that, done it even later in recovery. You know, I think I, there have been times when I've, I've rushed to an amends and I haven't thought about it properly and, you know, yeah, it's a bit of a dopamine hit for myself, right? I want to feel, feel better going to go out and do that um so yeah amends are are tricky but they are very freeing and you know i think it's but to me the and the, i guess the reason we started talking about them is it's all about that backing it up with action yeah. and you, you know that's why when when it comes from the, the wrong place and i've been there I've, I've had that um it's not backed up by action right it's backed up by all of those things we were talking about in this self-centered ego, right? I want this person to know that I'm better. Um, And, you know, there's a difference between letting somebody know that cares about you, maybe that you're, you're better versus trying to tell them that you're, you're better. And, you know, what if that person, you know, for me, that person broke up with you because of your drinking, it's really not great when they then find out that you've sorted it out. (laughs) <laughs> just not for them right like it's it's a weird thing like you know I've, I've, now so i think i've had some of those experiences and so it's not you know it's not right to just rush back into somebody else's life and the book does a good job of talking about that and sponsors do as well yeah 100 percent. the thing that was funny about this situation is that i broke up with him because he asked me to stop drinking <laughs> Um, and the other thing that I'll just add to that and then we'll move on from this this topic is that for me now making amends is not being tied to a result so like I'm not take I'm not making amends so that this happens I'm making amends because it's the right thing to do and I owe it to that person not because they have to forgive me or not because I'm going to get this certain response or you know like it's it's because it's part of the program it's because it's going to keep me sober and it's because they deserve it they you know they deserve it it's not because yeah if I get tied to a certain result then I'm not making the amends for the right reasons now it's about clearing your side of the the road right as the saying goes and I fully agree yeah a hundred percent um so this bit so this is just at the end and it talks about it says we've listed and analyzed our resentments which is step four that if you didn't listen to the last episode i would recommend going back and having a listen because it's a great episode on step four um we've begun to comprehend the futility and fatality of our resentments we've swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about ourselves um and you know this this kind of this honest desire to be better to be better is kind of the the message that i get from this and the willingness to make a change you know the willingness is so much a part of this program and it's you know they say it's not for people who need it it's for people who want it um and to kind of tie up i just wondered if you could just for us talk us through what what a day a day in the life of your recovery is like for you what are the kind of suggestions that you follow 
we we going on a good day or a bad day? Um, let's go on a, I, a good day. Let's go on a good, a good day. day. All right. So a good day um, for me, prayer. And for me, prayer and meditation are very much the same, um, you know, in the morning, um, briefly at evening. Uh, on a, a good day, I would read the Just for Today card. I think it's brilliant. Um, I absolutely couldn't stand it when I first came into recovery because I didn't want to have to feel that I had to dress well every day because that's a high standard to set for myself. And that's one of the things it says. And, you know, I'm an all or nothing kind of guy. So if I read something that says I'm going to do all these things, I, I feel that I need to do all of them. Uh, I don't really have that in between switch that that moderation switch doesn't exist in me. Right. So I, and so it's actually a humbling experience to read it now and I can appreciate it more. Uh, so yeah, prayer, meditation, um, and, and reading the just for today card. And then for me, uh, throughout the day, trying to check myself, uh, with really many step tens and make the apology there. And then if I have to, and, and try to amend my behavior moving forward, um, easier with people I don't know as well as opposed to people I interact with more often. Um, feel that, you know, my girlfriend, if she listens to this, will totally agree with that. She'll be like, I, I don't know the last time that you, you know, properly called yourself out. And so I think it's, it's harder when it's, you know, when it's somebody that close to you and you interact with and, um, and that's where a bit more perspective on them um, and, and being able to do a, that kind of at night step 10 and just look back and say, how would I improve on the day? What would I do differently? Um, for me, I, I work that into like kind of a, uh, an Ignatian, uh, like examination of conscience uh, is a prayer um, that I use for that. So that's kind of my, my step 10 at night. Um, that's a good day. That's a, that's a great day. Let's be honest. That's a, that's a day where I check all the boxes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't have those days that often. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, I, I like, I, I, I'll, I'll put it, you know, this day hasn't started that way. So, um, <laughs> but you know, that's the thing, right? It, it, it can end that way. Um, it can, you can do part of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess one question, um, you know, going all the way back to the, to the start of how it works. Um, you know, where it says we, we thought we could find an easier, softer way. Um, what, what's your, what's your easier, softer way on the day that you never. Ooh, my easier, softer way. Okay. So my easier, softer way is to give myself a massive lion to sleep until like 10 or 11, which I always regret always but I it seems like a good idea at the time um not to get dressed until after I've walked my dog so I'll walk my dog in my pajamas um and get a coffee on the way and then this is on a day when I'm not working right um come home eat something really unhealthy maybe get a takeaway for lunch and lie on my couch and watch Netflix all day. And then probably carry on watching Netflix to way too late. So until like 12, 1 a.m. 
and then get into bed and not have done any of the things, but be like, but I'm still sober. I didn't drink anything today, so it's okay. And then wake up the next day feeling like absolute crap and be like, okay, I'm going to try and do something a little bit different today. Maybe I'm going to pray today. I'll probably go to a meeting today. I need to call somebody today, probably my sponsor <laughs> and hence, hence on and hence forth. Um, just before we wrap up, I just wanted to draw attention to the Just For Today card. So if anyone is listening and doesn't know what that is, you can get it in in-person meetings. You can also find it online, um, either on the AA website, or you can literally just Google AA Just For Today card and there's an image of it there. Um, and something somebody said to me, and I can't remember who this person is, but I credit them all the time and I wish I could remember who it was, um, said that the Just For Today card, and to be honest, the whole program is like, a loving parent so for those people who didn't necessarily have loving parents it's kind of what you would imagine a loving parent would be like and for those that did then it's you know you can equate it to that but it's somebody who knows what's right for you like even if you don't think they do you know if your parents say like don't eat an entire bag of sweets you're going to feel crap and you're like four years old and you eat the entire bag of sweets and then you feel rubbish like you can't envisage the future for yourself that they can envisage they can see the results that you can't see and so the suggestions that they're giving you not rules not you know you must but the suggestions that are giving you they're giving you are because they love you and because they know it's for your best highest good and so when we do those things that the program tells us or the just for today card tells us we might not quite understand why because we can't see that far into the future or we can't quite visualize that why but somebody who's done it before us somebody who knows what the future looks like potentially says if you do these things you will feel better and i know that i never do all the things on the just for today card to be honest the like dressing well and looking is something that i do very very rarely <laughs> I'm not somebody who really puts that much effort into the way that they look but you know when I do one of two things on that just for today card and also you know pray meditate this that and the other I feel better and it's so funny because I'll go a few days trying the easier softer way and then I'll have a really good day and I'll be like oh my god yeah like this is why I do these things and every single time I'm surprised every time um but yeah, I think it's really great actually for people to know, you know, it's not about getting it right all the time, but just when you do the things, it's easier. That's, it's literally as simple as that. Life is easier when you do the things that are suggested and staying sober is easier when you do the things that are suggested. Um, and on that note, Dan, what is something that you are grateful for today? Yeah, um, for me, the number one thing I am always grateful for is that I remember how I went to sleep last night and I woke up without having to be worried about what I did yeah. because that just keeps me you know for me it's it, it's a it's like the daily thing I'm grateful for because it reminds me of what it was like there's so many things in my life that I'm grateful for and I have, I have so much and, and down to the program and just you know, circumstances in life, I've been very lucky. But fundamentally, the thing that I always will remember is that I'm not waking up in that panic state of fear. And I that is such a freeing experience, you know, and that's just one good thing I have. Yeah, 100%. I am grateful for 
the recovery community. Honestly, being able to chat to people like you, um, being able to chat to my other recovery friends, being able to see people that I know in meetings and get a hug, like it's it's just the best thing. And it's I'm so, so, so grateful for it because not only, you know, going to meetings and working the program, but I have these incredible connections that I just didn't have before and people that see me in a way that nobody ever I never felt so understood until I kind of started to build a, a recovery community around me and kind of, you know, call people regularly and see people and do things, you know, like actually live a life without alcohol. Who knew? Who knew it was going to be possible? Um, okay, so that's it. Thank you, Dan, so much for joining us. And listeners, we will be back next week with a speaker and a topic. Please do like and subscribe. If you have any questions or feedback about what you've heard today, we would love to hear from you. So please send us a message on Instagram at Young and Sober Podcast or email us at youngandsober at outlook.com. That is it for yet another episode. We are young and sober.